pardon me while I interrupt my weekly entreaty for you to sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter for a special announcement. The It's All Journalism team will be releasing our 500th episode on Thursday, February 24th. To mark the occasion, we will be live streaming an interview with Kat Downs-Malder, the Chief Product Officer and Managing Editor at The Washington Post. Kat was on our podcast way back in 2013, which was actually the first year of our podcast. She was a great guest then, and a lot has changed in the intervening years, so we've got a lot to catch up on. We will be live streaming at 12 noon Eastern Time on February 24th. You can watch the live stream either on Zoom or on our Facebook page. We will only be taking questions for Kat via Zoom, so you'll need to register ahead of time to do that. You can find the registration link on our Facebook page, our website, or pinned to our At All Journalism Twitter account. Once the interview is over, it will be available for a limited time on our Facebook page, and the audio will be posted as a podcast at a later date. This should be a fun event. I'm really looking forward to catching up with Kat, and I hope you'll be there. But enough for now. Here's the latest episode. Enjoy. We were going to talk to as many minority-owned businesses as we could find, which turned out to be difficult in part because a lot of the minority-owned businesses that we could find didn't want to talk because they didn't want to bite the hand that feeds them, as it were, even if it was a hand that never really fed them anything. One of the most important jobs a journalist can have is acting as a watchdog. Today, I talked to the leader of an investigative team that did just that in Boston. I'm Michael O'Connell. Welcome to It's All Journalism. The investigative reporting team at GBH, Boston's public radio station, recently looked at how contracts are being awarded by Boston and uh, the state of Massachusetts. The team uncovered inequalities in how contracts were being awarded and how public money was being spent. Joining me today is Paul Singer, who heads up the GBH News Center for Investigative Reporting. I'm going to be talking to him about the center's project, The Color of Public Money. Singer, welcome to It's All Journalism. Thank you very much, Michael. I appreciate the invitation. Enjoy talking to people who do investigative journalism. It's one of the most fascinating parts of our industry and essential as well. So to start off with, you know, tell me a little bit about yourself. How'd you get into, into investigative reporting? How'd you end up at GBH? You know, it's funny. I got lucky. My first real reporting job, and I had a couple of, I worked for the community newspaper. I had, you know, my, your sort of standard just out of school kind of jobs. I mean, I started my first newspaper when I was nine years old. I'd never really done anything else in my life. But my first real job job was working for what is known as a trade publication, which is to say it was a publication that specialized in covering environmental policy in Washington, D.C. for an extraordinarily high interest, high expertise audience. So it would never be enough to simply say, you know, the Environmental Protection Agency on Tuesday announced new air quality emission standards that will, you know, reduce the amount of air emissions from a vehicle, right? That wouldn't help these people. For our audience, we had to tell them that this rule was coming out six months in advance. We had to tell them what the particular level was going to be at which those regulations are going to be set. We had to tell them who at the EPA was arguing over where those regulations should be set. All of it was enterprise journalism. Our joke was that when the press conference happens, it's too late for us to cover it. For our newsroom, we had to know what was going to be said at the press conference and know what they were leaving out because we had covered all those details. That was my training ground for journalism, was that there was no such thing as just going to an event, covering it and writing about it. We had to be digging all the time for what's going to be news next month and the month after. 
Yeah, that's a wonderful level of journalism. I live out just outside of the D.C. I used to work for Federal News Radio, which was concentrated on the federal bureaucracy. And there are like thousands of jobs like that. You know, people think about, you know, Washington, D.C. and journalism in D.C. You know, they think of one thing, political coverage, but there's so many people who are working doing that type of work. And if you look back at that newsroom that I was in, it's called Inside Washington Publishers, the name of the company. They're still around. And if you look at the roster of people who have come through that newsroom and that training ground, it includes people like Jim Vandehei, who became the founder and creator of Politico. It includes people like John Bresnahan, who became the top congressional reporter at Politico and has now launched his own news outlet called, I think, Punchbowl News. It includes a CNN reporter named Manu Raju, who you might have met, who came out of that newsroom. People come out of that newsroom knowing how to dig stuff up that nobody else has, which is going to be the coin of the realm no matter what your journalism path takes you to. If you know where to find stuff that nobody else knows where to find, you are already two steps ahead of everybody else. So how'd you end up in uh, in Boston for the GBH News Center? Well, my last gig, I was running the politics desk for USA Today out of Washington, and it was becoming no more fun. Politics coverage is simply not very satisfying. We don't move the needle much. A lot of your stuff gets lost in the chatter. And I heard about this job. A friend of mine pointed it out to me. It was an opportunity for me to get back into real deep investigations. And it was an opportunity for me to honestly have an impact. Local newsrooms... The competition is very different. You really, if you break news, you make change. You see things happen as a result of the work you're doing locally that you really don't see nationally except in extraordinarily rare circumstances. So when this job came up, I was looking for a way to get out of Washington. I was tired of political coverage. There weren't any jobs in D.C. that were really of interest to me. I'd done most of them. And this came up and it looked like a great place to work. I love public radio. I was really excited about the possibility of getting out of print and into radio. And I was thrilled that I'd be running an investigative team doing just investigative work. I joke to people that that first year I was in Boston, I am five years younger than I was when I left D.C. <laughs> was the Color of Public Money project, was that the first project you worked on or yeah. were there others that you'd done before it? At GBH, yeah. So I got the GBH in March of 2018 and I didn't know anybody and I didn't know anything. And I was living in a crappy apartment across the street from the bureau. So I had nothing much to do. And I didn't know where my stories were going to come from because I had no leads and no background knowledge. So I had this very nice team and they were all working on stuff. I don't know, what am I going to do? So I did what I do, which is if you work for you know, Fed News Radio, you would know I went to the Federal Register because the Federal Register lists what every agency does all day long. And there's invariably tidbits of interesting news in there. But I'm like, OK, well, what's the Massachusetts version of that? Every state has something like that where all the agencies in the state have to report whatever public records or whatever regulations they're working on. And I literally I'd been here a week or two and I discovered that the one in Massachusetts is behind a paywall. And I took offense to that. That did not seem right to me. This is public information. Why is it behind a paywall? So I did a little digging around and I finally figured out that we we're going to actually have to pay for a subscription. When I got a subscription to it, I discovered that in there was where they announced contract awards and contract opportunities. I was like, hmm, okay, well, what are we going to do with this? And somebody introduced me to a group of students who were looking for the computer science students. They were looking for a data project. And I said, how about if I give you my password and you get into the state computer system and just scrape it all? Let's just 
take it. There was no terms and conditions on the website. There was nothing saying, please don't steal this material. It's all public information anyway. So, yeah. so we did. So we scraped it and we had, you know, 10 years worth of this stuff. And I'm like, well, what do you want to do with it? I said, I don't know. Let's figure out how many of these companies are minority businesses. Now, understand this took six or seven months to do. And in the end, what we found out was of the 13,000 contract awards that we had located over the 10-year period, 250 of them went to minority businesses. And those were state and local contracts combined. Like, okay, I think that sounds like a story. And that was really the origin story of the color of public money. From there, all we had was, a, it turns out, very badly flawed database full of partial information and a pattern that seemed way too consistent to be an accident. And so what we did is a whole bunch of reporting on, on getting the details of what really happened, getting some other reports, confirming the information. And in fact, what we figured out was that the value of contracts that the state government was awarding to minority-owned businesses had declined over the past two decades, despite the fact that the state keeps putting out these reports saying, no, we're doing great, we're doing great, we're doing great. And that was the first story we published was it uh, January 2020. You've built on that since. Right. Well, once we had gotten to that level, we decided to do two stories out of it. We did that story because we had this historic look back window. And then we also did sort of a comparison story where Philadelphia has had a much more success hiring minority businesses than, than the state of Massachusetts has. So we did a follow up story on that. And then there were some other questions that we had that we never quite got to the bottom to that we just kept scratching along. This is where we got into Boston. We discovered that Boston had something I don't remember the exact number, but it was some absurdly low number, like 1% of its co- of its contracts had gone to Black-owned businesses, for instance. And this kind of thing kept playing out. We kept finding stories. And then, and I'm embarrassed by this part, Michael, that one of the best stories we got out of this thing came because we had never really read the documents closely enough. And this gets back to Robert Caro's thing of turn every page, right? Somebody told us, at this point, we had sources and someone says, you missed something. We're like, what do we miss? Go check out the table in the back because it breaks it down further. These are the reports that the state puts out every year saying, look at how well we're doing working with minority-owned businesses. And they say, oh, we spent $400 million a year with minority-owned businesses. When you go to the back of the report, what you want to come to understand is that only half of that is actually direct contracts from the state. The rest of it is stuff that white contractors working for the state claim to have paid black or brown or minority owned businesses, right? We didn't realize that, that the state really only had credit for half of it. And the other stuff in that other half turned out to be sawdust and mixed up stuff. And if you had a Haitian caterer in your dining hall at your headquarters office, you could count that too. I mean, it was just all kinds of nonsense. So it just kept spinning out stories. And finally, after months and months and months of denying all of our stories, the governor very quietly, the night before the election, November 3rd, I guess, 2020, put out a press release announcing that we were right, that there were serious problems with the numbers, and he was creating a new state agency to fix it. Well, there you go. You just demonstrated why uh-huh. investigative journalism is, is so important, and especially at the local level, where you can actually, with a lot of hard work and you know, shining light in the right place, you can affect change. And so when did all of the um, response to this happen? Have you seen a lot of change since the governor's announcement? We've seen some changes in some interesting ways. The first change we saw... So this this office that they created, the agency created, was a small office within another agency that was sort of responsible for making sure that 
state government offices were in fact hiring minority contractors, minority vendors. So after our stories, they elevated that little office and made it its own state standalone agency. So the first things we have seen is that the budget of that office has doubled from last year to this year. They've increased the staffing. They're doing a bunch of new things. So again, we don't yet have results of they hired more black or brown or Asian contractors, but the office has been created. The second thing they did as a direct result of our reporting, and they announced this in the press release, is that they are going to change the way they are reporting the data to stop I guess I would say blurring the lines between these categories. They are going to be more transparent about what the dollar figures in these reports actually account for. So this year, six months late, they put out their report a few weeks ago, actually. Their first report under this new structure, under this new agency, and with new transparency. New transparency, except I will tell you, Michael, they did not release the report. They did not put out a press release. They didn't tell anybody they were putting it out. The only reason we know it came out is because I have been obsessively visiting that website for the past six months. Where's the damn report? Where's the damn report? Sure enough, it popped up one day. And what it showed once they had, you know, with new transparency is that the state was taking credit for contracts that were not going to minority-owned businesses. They were taking credit for contracts that went to nonprofits that had majority-minority boards. So what that means is that of the $200 million the state claims that it spent with minority-owned businesses, if you look a little deeper into the back pages, what you see is that something like $130 million of that went to nonprofit organizations that provide stuff like social services, housing, education, senior services, and the CEOs of those nonprofits are by and large not people of color, but they have a majority board that is BIPOC. So when you get to the actual numbers, out of a $4.7 billion budget, the state of Massachusetts spent $10 million with black companies. It's interesting what you find when you start shining light on things, that they recognize that that you aren't going away, that this issue wasn't going to disappear because they ignored it. They eventually did something that they thought would fix this problem. But again, it's just another iteration of the same sort of, you know, this is the way they sort of deal with it. This is what people want to see. This is all we're going to do. Do you still have that barrier? I mean, is that barrier still in place where you have to have a license or a a subscription in order to get a lot of this data? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I've never written the story and I keep thinking I should, but frankly, I don't know who cares. I mean, it's like, honestly, I don't know whether our readers, will our readers really care about a story that says, Hey, did you know that all the state information is buried on a website? You have to pay 300 bucks a year to get subscription to. Is it operated by the the government or is it something that's like somebody has set up this, well, we put this database together and we need to charge people to maintain it? Operated by the government. (laughs) So money that people are already paying to put a barrier between the information about the projects that they're funding. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And this is for you and me, like we're government uh, wonks, right? So we understand how absurd this is. I have just not figured out whether I can write a story that a regular reader or listener to a GBH broadcast or a GBH website 
is going to care about? Like, will that really make, you know, Mrs. McGillicuddy turn the page? I just don't know. <laughs> yeah, part of our job is to figure out how to, to make people understand why certain things are important. But true, that's a, it's a little far in the weeds. Who are you going to get to follow you out there? You know, again, for you and me, we understand that, okay, you know, if you've got that, if you remove that barrier, then there's a lot of, that can be done. I mean, we have the same sort of thing here in Virginia. The was it the Capital News Service, which is this, I'm not sure how it's structured. Some of it is internships, some of it is college students, some of it is our contract employees, whatever. Anyway, long story short, they cover the State House in Richmond when the General Assembly is in session. And, you know, they do the types of stories that you're not going to get unless you have a bureau down there and you're following them closely. And they recently filed a lawsuit to try to get the state of Virginia to give open access to a lot of the records, particularly around law enforcement, that there are these barriers. And it's not so much that we want to, you know, we want to get police officers in trouble or whatever. We want to be able to show people when things work and when things don't work and then maybe how to fix those things. So when you have these bureaucracies that set themselves up as gatekeepers, we need, we need to hold all this information. I understand, you know, from law enforcement point of view that, yeah, some of this stuff you, you do want to keep behind a wall for First Amendment um, protections of people's privacy and, you know, protecting an ongoing case. But there's so many other things, you know, like, you know, officer-involved shootings, for example, where because so much stuff goes on behind the, you know, behind a curtain, people don't really understand what's going on. And, you know, there are situations where light needs to be shined on this stuff to expose it. Have you heard from the public? Have you heard from Black-owned businesses about what they thought about this? Yeah, well, in fact, one of the reasons I think that this story had the impact it had was because we made a pretty conscious decision when we were pursuing these stories in the first place that we were going to talk to as many minority-owned businesses as we could find, which turned out to be difficult in part because a lot of the minority-owned businesses that we could find didn't want to talk because they didn't want to bite the hand that feeds them, as it were, even if it was a hand that never really fed them anything. They were in this catch-22 where I don't want to talk smack about the government not giving me any contract because someday I still hope to actually get a government contract. But we made it very clear that we were, you know, out there looking to talk to people and we did get a bunch of people to talk to, which is good. That's how these systems sort of self-perpetuate, is right. that they then rely on the, the people who are just grasping for whatever scraps they can get to stay quiet about the unfairness in the system. There's a penalty for self-advocacy. And, you know, we knew that going in. When you look back at the work that we did in those first couple of stories, the overwhelming majority of our sources were people of color. And we more or less continued that throughout the series is that we always went looking for people of color as experts to comment on this phenomenon. We went looking for people of color who were operating the businesses to get their perspective. You know, whenever possible, we wanted to hear from the community that was most affected. And so what ended up happening was that one of the business groups here in Boston, Massachusetts, in Massachusetts, but it's based in Boston, called BECMA, the Black Economic Council of Massachusetts, I think is what it's called. They were very good advocates on this topic. They kept taking our stories and going back to the governor and saying, what the hell is this? What the hell is this? What the hell is this? And sooner or later, frankly, after George Floyd's murder, the governor could no longer brush them off. You know, he had to basically opened the door to black and brown advocates on a bunch of issues in the state of Massachusetts because the murder of George Floyd had erupted into our consciousness 
structural racism became a thing that people were talking about. And once that happened, Beckma particularly had a, an avenue to the governor's office. And the governor said, well, what do I need to be doing better? And they said, well, for instance, look at this shit. That is part of why this change happened, because it was the advocacy, advocacy groups themselves taking our work, which they were very much involved in. They had been quoted. They had been they knew what we were working on. They had been briefed. They had been you know, we had been including them in the generation of this journalism. They knew it. They knew what it was about and they trusted it. They took it to the governor and said, you have to fix this. And so what's happened now since then, sorry, this is a long story, but since then, you know, we've gotten a lot more conversation. The stories keep rolling in. People keep telling us, oh, you got to come cover this one because they're not doing this one either. You got to go cover this one because they're not doing this one either. Oh, we've got this big Latino business thing. You got to cover that. So, I mean, once you make yourself a presence in the community, the community knows where to find you. And they come to you with stories that you wouldn't otherwise know. And we have decided that we are going to make ourselves a presence in this community and this topic. And we are going to continue to open the door to our community to tell us more stories that we need to be looking into. And there will be more color of public money coming out of it. So you see this as an ongoing sort of centerpiece to the the work that you're doing? We do. And Boston has just elected a new mayor for the first time who is a person of color and not a man. Every mayor in Boston's history has been a white man. We have now elected a mayor named Michelle Wu, who's Asian American. And one of the first things she did was issue a new, she has to get city council permission for it, but basically a proposal. She's issued a proposal for a, a pilot project to essentially set aside some categories of city purchasing for minority-owned businesses. And she hired a new economic development director who happens to be the former director of BECMA, the Black Economic Council. So it is very clear that the city of Boston, the new leadership of Boston, has decided to make this a tentpole of her administration. And therefore, it will be a tentpole of our coverage as well. I know with uh, federal contracting that there are set-asides for, you know, small businesses, minority-owned businesses. Is there anything like that in the state and the, the city government? They're not set-asides by and large. That One of the issues for most cities is they don't operate as set-asides because it's been declared those aren't legal. What they do is they set goals and targets for what percentage of contracts should be done with minority-owned businesses, disadvantaged businesses, in other senses like women-owned businesses, veteran-owned businesses, stuff like that. No pun intended, cities are sort of all over the map on where they are. But if there are reporters listening to this podcast, which I hope there are, any city that wants to do something like that, the way they get the legal justification to do it is by doing what's called the disparity study. And disparity study shows you how many businesses of color are out there, what percentage of the city or state work they should be expected to be landing, and then how much are they actually landing, and what's the disparity. The Supreme Court created this test, basically, for these city projects, these city um, essentially affirmative contracting programs, that in order to do it, you have to prove there's a disparity first. So cities and states around the country have been for many years now doing these disparity studies. The disparity studies prove in every single case, and let me rephrase this, the disparity studies prove in every single case that there are more minority-owned businesses available than they are getting the contracts for. So In any reporter listening to this, wherever you live, 
you can go to the city and ask if they've done a disparity study. And if they've done one, you can look at it and it'll tell you exactly how much money the minority businesses are not getting that they should be getting. And the Delta, the thing that is that makes the difference is by and large, some sort of structural racism. Yeah, for sure. And the way you directed that, you were talking to journalists, but, you know, what would you say to somebody who's in a newsroom who wants to sort of introduce this type of approach, this sort of micro look at things, you know, in the public space, in the government, you know, where would you tell them to go? Not maybe necessarily about this project, but, you know, how do they start the investigative process to uncover these things? It kind of depends on where you are and where you're at. I guess the first thing I always teach in my investigative reporting classes is read the bill. So when Congressman O'Connell releases his legislation and has a press conference saying we're going to ban the sale of computer mouses in Nashville, right? That's the goal of this bill. And he says at the podium, we're going to do that. You should pick up the bill and read it. Don't just take his word for it because it's probably not true. The legislation itself is an investigative project. You read the bill and you begin to understand that it doesn't really do what Congressman O'Connell said it was going to do, right? In fact, it does something else entirely or it doesn't work at all because the law doesn't operate that way. That's where you start is you read the things that the government produces and ask what these things would actually achieve. And do they achieve the things that the government says they're going to achieve? You can pick any topic you want. If there's a government report on it, get the report, read the report. Does the report say, and we did this X, Y, and Z thing, or does the government report say, here's X, Y, and Z thing that we're planning to do, but here's why it didn't actually happen. That's where the investigative material is. That's something you realized. I'm sure you learned in your job in D.C. covering uh, environmental issues that you, you got to get as granular as you can. You got to find the the underlying, you know, as you said, legislation, underlying data that supports whatever, and verify that, and then use that as your basis to sort of build your reporting on. Which was what you you explained you did at the beginning of um, the Color of the Public Money Project. You had data. Well, what can this data tell? us. Let's make sure it's good data, but then, you know, move on and build the stories out of it, you know, tell stories. Because in the end, that's that's really what it comes down to. The data is not going to necessarily reveal itself. It's going to be the reporting. It's going to reveal the story and be the thing that people are going to respond to. You have to also, and this is the other part of sort of investigative journalism. Some of your audience may be familiar with the story of the Watergate story, whereby a president of the United States ends up resigning. I know ancient history now. The beauty of that story is really that it was one good question, which is, Five burglars are arrested for breaking into the Democratic National Party headquarters, and one of them had an address book. And in that address book was a phone number for the White House. The entirety of Watergate grows out of faithful pursuit of the one good question. And the one good question was, why do these burglars have a White House phone number? That was the entirety of that story. It took two years and change and reporters from the Washington Post, the New York Times and other places to investigate in depth. But it was really that was the question. And they finally figured it out. and The president resigned. So you have to have fealty to your one good question 
Why is it that there's no minority contracts in this database? That's all we have been doing for two years. <laughs> is asking that question over and over and over again and sticking to it and being consistent with it. And you're pretty, you're pretty confident. You've got other stories to, to write about this. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. And I commend you and your team for the work that you're doing on this. This is, it's almost laughable in the way that it seems so simple, but in actuality, it's, it's hard. You put a lot of harder, hard work in, but you know, these stories are out there. This data is out there. All you need to do is look to see how people are gaming the system or how inequality or unfairness is happening. And there's usually a process behind it somewhere. And once you can sort of lay out that process and identify things. So there have been no criminal charges coming out of this? Nobody's lost their job? Any of this reporting? No. Nobody's lost their job necessarily. Yeah. I can't say anybody's lost their job directly related to our reporting. And there's no criminal charges, although I will tell you for what it's worth that some of the stuff we found has raised the attention of law enforcement because it raises the question about whether or not you are lying when you fill out a form saying, I hired a minority business. That is an extraordinarily challenging thing to prove. And so I would not expect necessarily, but I would at this point not be surprised if charges at some point did emerge from some of our reporting, because we're beginning to understand, even now, I got to tell you, Michael, that I'm still learning new things about how this process is messed up. Even though I've spent two years in the bottom of it, I'm still finding new alleys I hadn't thought about before. And we're continuing to investigate that stuff. And I think that it's entirely plausible at some point that somebody would, in from law enforcement, take notice and, and ask some of the same questions we're asking. Okay. So you're focused on this. Are there any other projects that you're, you're going to be working on or that you have been working on? Just tell me about some of those. Yeah. Well, so uh, my team, not so much me, I've also been accidentally temporarily serving as sort of another leadership role in our newsroom. I was the temporary executive editor for a little while. So it took me away from some of my reporting, but uh, my team has been working on particularly a project called Unseen the boy victims of the sex trade. We discovered at some point earlier this year, some really interesting numbers and data regarding how few young men and boys were being identified as victims of sex trafficking. It was almost entirely all the attention was going to, to women who are the victims of sex trafficking. So we started doing a little digging there and ended up with a couple of, and we're actually finishing our now, our fifth and sixth stories on this topic. It's been a pretty powerful series and I'm really proud of the work. And this, of course, had nothing to do with the color of public money. This was a whole different lane my team was traveling in. But they unveiled some really, really dramatic and troubling things about sex trade that preys on young men and boys, particularly transgender women who have been disowned by their families, who have fallen through the cracks of the foster care system. It's just a horrible story. It's been very sad and troubling, but I'm very proud of the work. So that has been really our primary focus. We're still doing some of the color public money stuff on the side as well, but, but that's been the primary fo focus of our team, I would say, for this past year. And I encourage people who are listening to this to check out work that the GBH News Center for Investigative Reporting is doing. We're obviously going to have the links with the stories here. You know, thank you for doing this. I, I hope somebody at some point has said thank you to you. But as a fellow journalist, I thank you for putting the effort in and doing the hard work. Although I'm sure you seem to be the type of person that this type of uh, work feeds you. Um, this is my joy. This is this my is joy. Your, 
Absolutely. If we all had that that type of joy with everything that we did. Singer, thanks for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. And thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Capre wrote our theme music. Emilio Brust helped with our booking. Steph Thomas is our social media manager. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>